Sustainable Waste Management, How Do We Get There? That's our topic this morning. I'm joined today by Delia Fay, Senior Regional Planner with the Northeastern Connecticut Council of Governments, as there's an event coming up tomorrow in Danielson with that very topic, Sustainable Waste Management, How Do We Get There? Delia, good morning. Thanks for coming in today. And for starters, tell me about this event tomorrow with the speakers and so forth you have coming to QVCC in Danielson. Well, thank you for having me. We are going to start out with a very brief introduction or brief um, listening to State Senator May Flexer, who is a 2019 environmental champion by the Conservation League of Voters. And then we're going to move on to our speakers. We have Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection's contractor Kristen Brown from Waste Zero. She's going to be talking about how municipalities can move closer to helping the state achieve their 60% diversion goal, increase recycling, and reduce carbon emissions through something called Smart Waste Management. That stands for Save Money and Reduce Trash Programs. And there are lots of different things that towns can do that will save them money and also increase recycling, which is better for everyone. And we're going to be hearing from Kevin Brudris, who's a staff attorney at Conservation Law Foundation. He's going to be talking about how they may be able to upgrade the deposit return system, perhaps to include more than just beverage bottles or single-use beverage bottles, and uh, single-use plastic restrictions and extended producer responsibility, which is where they require the uh, packaging manufacturers to redesign their packaging and also to sort of transform the systems where they take on some of the responsibility for recycling. Right now, all that responsibility is basically on the consumer. And if you don't know what to do with it, or if you're in a position where perhaps you bought your beverage or your container, and you're not in a place where they have an available recycling container, it obviously will be thrown out and then it gets incinerated. So they're trying to come up with these different ways to increase recycling and save the town's money. Our next speaker will be Lori Matthew, Connecticut's Public Drinking Water Administrator, and Pat Pisaki, Environmental Analyst 3 with the Department of Public Health's Drinking Water Section Source Assessment and Protection Unit. They're going to be talking about Governor Lamont's action plan regarding the uh, PFAS, which is uh, per and polyfluoral alcohol substances. I've heard it's this somewhere between 3,500 and 6,000 different chemicals that are in this group. The problem with them is that once they get into the environment, through a variety of means, they just don't go away. And there are many, many scientific studies that have done show that they are linked to health problems, serious health problems. And so uh, PFAS probably is best well known for being part of uh, firefighting foam. And we had those tragedies last summer at the airport where there was a spill and then it washed into the river, contaminating it. You're not supposed to eat the fish from the river anymore. And then there was a plane crash at the same airport in the Hartford area in October, and the same firefighting foam had to be used this time to save human lives, but it still leaked into the river. And that firefighting foam is used all over the place by all sorts of fire departments and also in training. And so even though it serves us a great service by protecting us, it's really bad for our health and the environment. And so they're going to be talking about the governor's action plan that he put together after this tragedy happened with this first spill, and what do we do about it, how do we minimize contamination, how do we move forward to try to prevent contamination in the future. 
And the other thing I wanted to mention about PFAS is it's in so many other products that we use, stain-resistant, water-resistant, waterproof products, nonstick cookware. It's in metal finishes. It's in so many things that we've been using since the 1940s. And so all of that stuff that we've thrown away that's been incinerated or buried in landfills before they did incineration, that's out there and can be contaminating the groundwater around those landfills. I heard the word fluoridated in that PFAS term that you just used. A lot of the water is fluoridated. Is that yes. part of the same thing? Is that a bad thing or is that a different equation altogether? Well, fluorine I think is completely different. Okay. Um, that's um, They put it into the water for a different reason. And, and it's not hurting the environment the way this P PFAS stuff is. Well, I think there's probably different opinions on it. My personal opinion is you shouldn't be consuming fluoride. Fluoride, it's not good for your health. It's certainly not good for your thyroid. But um, I don't believe it's anything related to PFAS. Okay, I just had to clarify that. And then, Dealey, what will your role be in this panel discussion tomorrow at QVCC? I'll be introducing the speakers and then at the end I'll be doing the next steps and questions and answers where we hope to hear a bunch of great ideas from the audience and also from our speakers about how we move, take all this information and how we move forward. And there was one other speaker I hadn't mentioned yet, Maureen Nicholson, the first selection from Pomfret. She's going to be talking about the environmental depot that's proposed there. And I can talk about more th about that if you'd like. Yeah, tell me what the environmental depot is. Originally, we had planned this to be a facility to collect household hazardous waste because in northeastern Connecticut, many of the towns have a once a year or maybe even once every other year one day collection for household hazardous waste. And it's such because it's only on one day, you may never even find out about it, or maybe you just can't make it on that day. You're working, or you have other plans. And so your household hazardous waste, are you going to store it in your basement, risking a leak? Are you going to throw it in the trash because you don't want to hold on to it? What happens to this other stuff? And those are corrosive, flammable, lots of other uh, items in the mix, and they should not be incinerated, and they should not be dumped outside. They should not be you know, saved forever because they could spill and, and be harmful to your health and harmful to the environment and pets and stuff like that. And so right now, if the town's only having a one-time-a-year one collection or every other year, like some of the towns, there's very little chance for you to properly dispose of it. And so we at NECOG did some research, and we visited some of the other sites in Connecticut where they have maybe as many as... 20 or so collection days because they have a facility and it looks basically like a gas station canopy with a fence around it and it has a concrete three compartment bunker to store any partial containers after that one collection day and so they have multiple opportunities through half of the year but the rest of the time you know they still have to store it over the uh, winter and many of those facilities only have a three to five percent participation rate for the population that they serve so where's the rest of the waste going? And so in Northeast Connecticut, we were thinking it would be great if we had a regional facility that if we can get this approved, we would also have to apply to change the law to have it be available year-round. And our facility, we were planning that would be an indoor facility, therefore it could be open year-round. It would All of the items that we collect would not be subject to the elements. They would be indoors. The facility would be designed to contain any spills. And 
also facilitate better collection of of the waste items that should not be incinerated, we would uh, design it so that we can collect other items that should not be incinerated that right now may not be considered hazardous by law, but they also should not be incinerated. And they may be difficult to get rid of, like batteries and mattresses and light bulbs. And there may currently be other um, opportunities for you to dispose of them, but they may not be as convenient. Who pays for the environmental depot? Well, we would uh, apply for a grant to get it going, and then the towns that are served by that facility would have to pay a certain amount. And so right now we are uh, putting together a grant application so that we can determine what the size of the facility should be and then what each town's contribution would need to be. This event tomorrow morning, is it designed for town organizers? Is it designed for the general public? Who can go to this? Anybody can go, and I and I hope I have a variety of people in the audience. I would love for the uh, people from the municipalities to go so they can see how we can save money while increasing recycling. We've been talking about that uh, with the member towns in, in the NECOG region in the past year. But I'd also love for anybody who's interested in this to, to come because it's we all, the way I look at it is we all share in this responsibility because we're all producing trash. How can we not produce a better system if we don't all acknowledge that we are a part of the problem? Let me define this term, or have you define the term, Delia, sustainable waste management. What does that mean? There's probably a, a big debate on what that means, but to me, it would mean that we don't jeopardize our future for our luxurious lifestyle today. You know, we live a consumer society, and I'm, I'm no hypocrite. I buy a lot of stuff every day, probably, and we produce a lot of waste. And so we need to think about how do we manage that waste? What do we do with it so that we're not jeopardizing future generations? And I would think sustainable would mean we would not want to devote large amounts of land to eternal brownfields in order to deal with this waste. We have other op other options available to us. We can recycle, we can compost the food waste and the yard wastes and other biodegradables. We can recycle items and turn them back into new products, bottles or packaging. Maybe we can even turn them into other value-added products. All of those things benefit the economy. They produce jobs. When you just burn them and bury them, you're taking those resources out of the what's available to make new stuff. They're out of the economy, and then they sit there forever. And I would think that's not sustainable. It's not economically sustainable. It's not environmentally sustainable. I think for many people, because we all have busy lives with our family and our careers and everything, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about what happens to our trash. You put it in the bag, you put it out at the curb, or you take it to the transfer station, and then you probably just never think about it again. But in reality, it doesn't go off to some magical never-never land. You know, something happens to it. And I, my respect goes out to all the people who work in waste management. It's a tremendously complicated issue. And when you have all of this stuff jumbled in together, what option do you have but to incinerate it? It's very complicated. Your equipment wouldn't work very well trying to sort out stuff. And when you recycle, if people are putting in items that are actually dirty, you're taking, removing a lot of the value from those recyclables because the dirty stuff contaminates the clean stuff and then there's not a lot of value left. So it's compli uh, recycling itself is complicated for the consumer and then it's very complicated for who has to deal with it on the other end.
but we're proposing with the Environmental Depot and also with all of these laws that could be changed to uh, encourage the consumer and the towns to deal with recycling in a different way. We're trying to remove some of those um, items from the waste stream that actually have value and could be used in a different way and put them back into the into the economy and then whatever's left you may still have to incinerate it because if we haven't figured out some other method then that's what we would have to do but it would be a shame that we would take all of these resources that it took to make these items and then just bury them and then have to mine virgin materials to make more items that will then be landfilled again so for me I would think sustainable would mean to transform that system so we we keep as many of those valuable resources in the economy and out of the environment. Is this event tomorrow designed just to be informational as far as what sustainable waste management is, or are you also looking to push an agenda or make policy changes? We are talk. We would have a few of our talkers, the Kristen Brown and Kevin Boudreaux, are going to be talking about possible legislative changes that could happen. And so we would like to educate people about what those changes could be and hopefully build some support around them and also to educate people about why we need to care about these things. The PFAS contamination is just one example of why waste management is so important. And um, so I don't really have an agenda. I'm more of trying to educate people. And I suppose I should take that back. I really do support the Environmental Depot concept, and I hope that we can get that off the ground. And we would like to educate people about why that could be a great thing for their region. Have you had conferences like this before, or is this the first year you've done this? It's the first time we've done this. And what was the inspiration behind it? Were you, were you the one that was the, the one that took the flag on this one and organized it? Well, last summer we were working on the concept of the Household Hazardous Waste Collection Facility, and it grew out of that. Uh, we had a grant previously, and we were not able to get all the details together. The towns in the region would need more information in order to make a commitment so that they would know how much money they'll have to put into their budgets to be a part of this system and we didn't have all of those details and so we move forward with we still think it's a great concept it's, there's a great need for this in the region and how do we move forward and then we had several individuals who contacted NECOG who wanted to come speak to our our board members and our region about these issues and instead of tacking them on at the end of a board meeting where there wouldn't be that much time and there may be a very small audience we figured why don't we have an event where they can all come on the same day and talk to people because there would likely be a larger audience, and then we can talk about more issues and maybe get some more great input coming out of that, more ideas, so that we can hopefully move forward in a better direction. You're pretty fired up about this. How did this whole thing start with you? Well, um, I have a degree in environmental science, so that was my background originally, and I've been a town planner and wetlands agent and zoning enforcement officer for about 18 years. So I've been dealing with all of these issues. When I worked in Woodstock as the town planner and the zoning enforcement officer, I often had to deal with properties where people were illegally dumping on their property. And some of them were quite extensive for such a small town. And so I have that background where I have to go and see these properties where it really is a shame how they turn them into their own little brownfield almost and I kept thinking this isn't really solving the problem 
and and sometimes, unfortunately, I think the problem was that people didn't have the resources to manage their own issue with their what they had on their property properly, or maybe there was some mental illness why they would accumulate so much stuff. But it just the limitation on the town is you enforce your zoning regulations. People may not have the resources to get rid of such a large quantity of stuff, but we still had to make them clean it up. And that doesn't help their issue if it's if it's related to mental health issue or whatever might be going on. And it just seems so ineffective. You get it cleaned up, but then you can come back next year and the problem might be there again. Is some of the problem the town's not providing a service so they had to do it on their yard? Um, no, I think a lot of it has to do with... Um, and there may be a challenge, and for instance, if you don't have a car, then you can't take your stuff to the transfer station. Or if your town doesn't have curbside recycling, sometimes I think people really don't care. It could be a matter of, of what you find acceptable is different than what your neighbor finds acceptable. And so you have a huge spectrum of what people are willing to live with. And if you're not concerned about it and you just throw your stuff outside, you start with a little bit and then it gets bigger, and then over time you just get used to it. But other people see that and they could be astonished with how you could live that way. And there's a huge range of what people find acceptable. And this has been a passion for you for years. When you were at the University of Southern Maine, you worked in the university's recycling department, even when driving a forklift around the campus. Huh? Yes, I learned how to drive one. It's The rear-wheel drive is, was a trick to learn, but it was a lot of fun. And now I'm quite good at, I must say, at driving in reverse. I have a very long driveway. I can drive down the whole thing in reverse. It's kind of fun. <laughs> what are you moving around on a forklift? When I worked at the facilities management, um, we collected all of the recyclables for the university, all the bottles and cans, and all of the paper, and we put them in giant boxes called Gaylord boxes, and we'd have to sort the paper, so you put newsprint in one, uh, mixed paper, you mix colors and types of paper, and then you'd have white paper. And when the box was full, we would have to take it, put it through the shredder, and lift you know the 30-gallon trash can over your head into the bailing machine, and it takes you know, quite a bit of trash cans, so I got really good shape that summer. And then when the bailing machine is full, it would bail it. You have to wrap the wire around it, and and it's so huge that you'd have to use a forklift to remove it out of the bailing machine and drive it over to put it into the trailer. When the trailer gets full, you have to drive it across the street to put it into a different warehouse until they can take it away. Well, here's a little recycling bugaboo that I have. That you, you get a, a soda or some bottled drink in some store, and then you go to take your stuff back to some other store, which doesn't sell that brand, and it doesn't accept when you want to recycle that bottle. Now, I'm, I'm my head's in the right place. I want to recycle that, get my nickel back, whatever the case is. Is there some way to make that uniform so they take everything and don't have to go to four different places to return four different bottles? I think that's an excellent point. It also drives me crazy. Um... I think it has to do with the the town, I'm sorry, the business collects their five cents and they know what they sell. And then I'm not sure if the money has to go to the state. And then when they reimburse you for the item, they only want to reimburse you for the item that they sold you because if they took more items than they sell, then they probably have to, you know, provide those five cents in each item that you're bringing in when they didn't sell all of those to you. So they probably keep track of how many items that they've sold and then how many five cents per item they would have to give back. So it probably has something to do with that. Uh, there are some facilities, like in in Woodstock, there's a nonprofit that organi it has a 
Redemption Center, and they take in anything from, as long as it's recyclable, I'm sorry, um, as long as it's returnable, they take it in, and then they pay you because they're not a store, and they get reimbursed from the state, and they have to charge a little bit of a service fee so that you don't get as high of a, I don't think you get your complete five cents as you would at the store, but it's more convenient. You can bring everything there. But that's part of the challenge. And I went skiing recently over the holiday break, and at the ski area in New Hampshire that I went to, they don't even have a recycling bin. So all the food that you're buying is on your paper plate, and then you have your cup of beverage, your your drink bottle, and all of it's going into the in, into the trash can. And so you're thinking that's just the waste from all the people in the room that you can see. But then you think of all the facilities like that, not just ski areas, but movie theaters and stores and restaurants and every type of place you can think of. And it just, you can just imagine the mountain of trash that would be every hour. And that's why we need to do something about it to have a better system. Delia Fay, Senior Regional Planner with the Northeastern Connecticut Council of Governments. So that senior regional planner job of yours, what is it that you do, and what are some of the things you've been involved with at the Northeastern Connecticut Council of Governments? I'm glad you asked. I, um, one of my biggest projects is working on the long-range transportation plan for the region, and so I recently did a outdoor recreation and non-motorized transportation survey and I the deadline was January 1st and I haven't collected all the paper surveys but so far I have about 739 people doing the survey so that was pretty exciting and that was to get the input of people who walk bike run all the sorts of outdoor activities for recreation but also if they're doing those things as a forms of transportation and what are their challenges? If we can identify those challenges, we can figure out how to address them because that's all part of our transportation infrastructure. And then I'll be going on to do a more general transportation survey, like commuting and that sort of thing. And then I'd like to do a survey on freight and rail. You know, what are the challenges that each of these types of transportation is currently dealing with and how we can address them. Well, it's funny about the transportation system because when I began here back 50 years ago, you could not take a bus to go from Willimantic to Putnam or Killingly or to Norwich or places like that. You can now. So we do have, we've made progress in that area. But w as far as public transportation is concerned, are you looking, is your goal to expand upon that? Well, and that's part of what I would cover in the plan. And at the Northeast Connecticut Council of Governments, we do have a transit district, but it's limited. So they have, I think, four of the towns are on the regular route, and then they have another bus service that serves elderly and disabled people. And so each of those routes have their constraints, um, and we would like to extend our service down to Plainfield. It's been a bit of a challenge. It hasn't gotten off the ground yet. but. Um, there's always an opportunity to tr try to uh, figure out how we can serve more people. You know, not everybody has access to a car, and if you don't have access to a car, it becomes so challenging, and especially in the rural parts of the state, how do you get to work? How do you get to to the doctor's office or sh do your normal routine shopping? How do you do all of these daily things when you don't have access to regular transportation? And then there's all the other transportation challenges that even people with cars have. 
And I think I heard you between the lines make a reference to the rail trails, like the airline trail. Is that something you're involved with? Because that's something that I'm really, really big into. Yes, I'm, I'm a big fan of the rail trail. I love riding bikes on it. We, My husband and our kids go on it. In the wintertime, we've been cross-country skiing. We had this double-wide uh, bike trailer, and we put skis on it, and we would take the kids on that and go for quite a distance. Now they're a bit larger, and they don't want to squish into the trailer, so it's become a challenge. But it's so much fun, and we've often ridden our bikes for 14 miles or so with the kids, and then we, in Pomfort, you can turn off on one of the main roads and go over to We Like It and feed the kids ice cream and stuff, so it's kind of fun, and they really look forward to that. Um, so that's a great trail for recreation and also perhaps people could use it once it is continued they're i'm sorry i'm babbling they're extending it into putnam so when they're done with that there could possibly be some people who might take that into putnam who work in the putnam area yeah that area north of pomford's got a little work to do on it yeah. is there a timetable for that or is it just going to be done down the road a couple uh, of years i think it's they're working on it now and I'm, oh, there are good. some more grants they need to apply for to, to get the end of it because I believe the current grant didn't quite get it to down to connect to the, to the road. So it's going to be connecting, I think, to Kennedy Drive. And then I'm not sure of the route exactly, but when you get over towards Thompson, the trail picks up again. And so there will be a connection. You may have to go on, on actual roads for a stretch. But I think it's really interesting, and it will be so much fun to connect you know, northeastern Connecticut with, it can come all, all the way out here because they do have that race in the fall, the 18-mile race. Trail. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and and they want to connect the whole thing. The, the signs say Maine to Florida. they got yes. a lot of work to do on that, but, yes. you know, at least, at least in eastern Connecticut, uh, we've got a pretty good head start on that. I was on the Airline South Trail yesterday, and, of course, the Hop River Trail is great as well. Let me step back and take a big picture here. The Northeastern Connecticut Council of Governments. Delia, what exactly is that organization? We have 16 towns, and we border Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and then we extend west a bit and a little bit south. And so there's it's a huge area, and we're largely rural, so we have probably a different set of challenges than many of the other parts of the state. But it's... A little over 96,000 people, and whether it's transportation or, you know, economic challenges and the issues of affordable housing, and all of these towns are facing all the same challenges that all of the other towns in the state are. We just have more rural take on those challenges. This conference tomorrow, Sustainable Waste Management, How Do We Get There?, what things about this concept do people not understand that we still don't get the point across to them? Because we're doing things now when it comes to sustainable waste management we weren't doing 10, 20, 30 years ago, and we'll be doing things in 30 years we're not doing now. So what things are there that you hear about that people don't understand about this concept? I think a lot of people, again, they don't think when they put their trash in the trash can, they don't think about what happens to it when it gets removed in the truck. You probably don't even think about it a second time. And then um, you might be assuming that it gets recycled. So if you're kind of out of the loop, maybe living under a rock, you haven't heard that China doesn't take our recyclables anymore. They have much higher standards, or we're not set up. We were doing recycling. It sounds 
like it was better a few years ago, and then they switched it over to single stream recycling, which was meant to simplify things, I, I think, and I don't think it quite worked out. I think there was a lot of, it seems to have discouraged people from recycling because now I think they can throw everything in the bin, whether it's clean or not, and also perhaps there's quite a bit of wishful thinking. A lot of items that are not recyclable that you might um, prefer or you might hope that they would be recycled if you just throw them in you think well something will happen to them but they're just going to cause problems in, with the system. Plastic bags really tangle up the equipment. Things like straws they are made out of plastic but they are not the equipment for recycling is not set up to handle those. They're too small they probably just get stuck in the equipment and make it malfunction. And But there's other items that we wish that would be recycled so you might put them into the recycling bin but they are not going to help the system because they end up just causing a problem when they're not the system is not set up to take them. All right, story time at Radio Ranch here. I want to hear about the solar electric car race team that you were involved with in high school. That was so much fun. Um, our team, we were the Soul Survivor 4. That was the name of the car that we had um, the year I was on the team, our team had previously had a car, and we were in the solar electric commuter category, so we had two people that could fit in the car. When I joined the team, we had decided to build a new car, and we wanted to stay in the solar commuter category, but how could we improve on that? And so we came up with some ideas. We invited some car designers from Detroit, and they listened to our presentation and gave us some feedback, and we ended up choosing to go with the tandem design, one in front of the other, so it's still a commuter, but it made it more narrow, more aerodynamic, and we uh, we had to do all of this with donations and the work from the team to put it together. So like for instance, our speedometer came from a snowmobile and someone donated the steering wheel. I think it might have come from a, not a, quite a go-kart, but something bigger than that. And um, we came up with the frame that we wanted with the help of our our coach and then we welded it together and then we sent it off to an actual you know car manufacturer they made the frame for us and sent it back and we had to uh, basically it was like building a boat we had to laminate wood together carve it in the right shape smooth it down super smooth and then we sent it off to a fiberglass company they made the body and sent it back to us and we had to assemble all of these pieces into the car and then we had to test it to make sure we had everything working it had to be road legal all of the cars in the race had to be registered and inspected and the first year we didn't have enough money so we only had a front windshield we didn't have any other windows and we didn't have the door so we had to climb in through the window and I was the only girl on the team so I didn't get to drive the car during the race but, Why can't uh, a girl drive? Wait a minute. Of course a girl can drive, but for some reason I I just, they never let me drive. But it was still so much fun, and um, I did ride in the car during the race, and the one of the solar panels was flapping a little bit just before we went into the Holland Tunnel, because I forgot to mention this race was from New York City to Washington, D.C. over five days. And so you had to lean out the back window, so it was a good thing we didn't have a back windshield, and tape it down with duct tape. And so each leg of the race, you would do probably 50 to 70 miles, and then you'd end at a community spot like a town green or a high school or something. And uh, once you get to the end, if you still had juice left, they had an obstacle course, or usually like a loop. You'd just drive loops until you ran out of gas or electricity power. It was not gas, it's just, you know, reference. And 
so then you'd get points for how many laps you could do on top of the miles that you did. And so the, each day you'd get so many points. And in the morning, we would have to do a presentation to the community. And you got points on how you presented your car, how you explained how it worked, how the system worked, how the solar panels worked. And then we would take off. So each leg of the race, we would take off from that community and drive for the next leg of the race. And we won first place in the solar commuter category. And then the next year, we had more money, and we put the door in. So the design was, because it's, side, it's um, tandem, we park on the right side of the street in this country. We only had one door on the right, a gull door, a gull wing door, so you could open it up. And that way, you simplified the design. Uh, we kept the weight low as we could because we need extra you know, um, hydraulic lift to lift the door, that kind of thing. So it was so fun. Now, do you charge that solar battery before you make the drive from New York to Washington, or is it actually charging itself when you're on the road on a sunny day, or what happens if you don't get sun? <laughs> the funny thing is you still get a minor amount of solar energy even on a cloudy day, but not solar as certainly yeah. right. Solar certainly not as much as on a sunny day, and uh, we did charge the batteries at the end of the race if there was it was still light out because it wasn't that late in the day, and uh, so the batteries would be charged, and then there were solar panels on the car that would help generate more electricity, and then we had a regenerative brake. So every time you stepped on the brake, you would be sending electricity back to the battery through your motor. Are you driving on like the Jersey Pike? In a solar car, and there's trucks going by you, and all. We that didn't kind of go stuff? on the highway. We went. We started in the city, and then we went on. They were like state roads, but not like interstate highways. They were much you're smaller. You're going by regular cars and stuff. Yes. Or, or they're yep. going by you, one or the other. How fast yeah. does this thing go? It was many years ago, but I th we probably went. We could go 40, 50 miles an hour. I think. It's well, not bad. And our car looked pretty decent. So there were some other odd-looking cars because they were largely designed by high schools. Getting back to the reason you're here, this conference tomorrow, Sustainable Waste Management, how do we get there? All right, so we get there by going to Upper Maple Street in Danielson, QBCC, tomorrow morning, 8.30 to 12.30. Specifically, it's free, but how do people register, which is required? We were we are requiring the registration just so we can have an idea of how many people are coming, but I certainly wouldn't want someone not to go because they're not registered. Uh, we do have a large auditorium, so I'd welcome anybody, even if they haven't registered, to still go. But um, you can go on the NECOG website, that's N-E-C-C-O-G and there's a link right from there. Or you can go to Eventbrite and search for the title, Sustainable Waste Management, How Do We Get There? And you'd enter through the main entrance, and the auditorium is sort of on the down the hall, just a little bit on the right. As this event will be tomorrow from 8.30 a.m. until 12.30 p.m., Sustainable Waste Management, How Do We Get There? Delia Fay, Senior Regional Planner with the Northeastern Connecticut Council of Governments. Fun stuff, important stuff. Delia, thanks for coming in this morning. Thank you for having me.